You know, there are certain names, places, and nations that are quickly recognizable to the student of the Bible. And of course, one of the great thrills is that which some of you have had, and that is to visit the lands of the Bible, where that narrative took place, where that history uh, came to pass, and to see firsthand many of these places whose names we've heard since childhood. Regarding some of them, little is known, not much remains regarding some of the places. But other places are well documented, not only in biblical history, but in secular history as well. And Babylon is an example of the latter. To grasp the place of Babylon in the history of the world, it might be helpful to envision four mountains with valleys in between them. Because it seems to me that there are four peaks, shall we say, when the history of Babylon comes before us uh, in a magnificent way, in a way that should strike our attention, in a way that would cause us to stand back and say, uh, that is important. The history of Babylon has been a continuous one in many respects, but there are four peaks, so to speak, when that history needs to be examined for us to understand what the Bible says regarding the place of Babylon in the history of the world. It might be best to say up front that Babylon refers to a literal place, to a city, also to an empire. But Babylon also in the Bible has symbolic or allegorical meaning as well. For Babylon has represented in the Bible rebellion and defiance against God. Babylon stands throughout the Old Testament in opposition to God and to his chosen people. It is a godless human system as well as a place and a city. And that will be more clear as we come to the end of our time tonight. But as we think about the four peaks of Babylon's history, I think it's best to begin with Genesis chapter 10. So I invite you to turn there with me. In Genesis chapter 10, we have recorded for us the descendants of the sons of Noah. And beginning in verse 6, it is the descendants of his son Ham. One of his sons was named Cush. And in verse 8 it says, Now Cush became the father of Nimrod. He became a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. And also Erech and Akhed and Kalna in the land of Shinar. And so we come across the name of one Nimrod, who is the great-grandson of Noah. It says here that this one was mighty on the earth. 
This is the same word that is used back in chapter 6 and verse 4, where it says, The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, that is, the days before the flood, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old men of renown. This is not an easy Hebrew word to uh, dissect, and yet it seems to imply much more than just physical might or prowess. When it calls Nimrod a mighty one on the earth, it's not saying that he rivals Arnold Schwarzenegger. It has a whole lot more meaning than that. Because the implication here in the might and the power of this man was that he was mighty and powerful in wickedness, in iniquity. That certainly is the context in Hebrew, in, uh, in Genesis chapter 6, among those people called the Nephilim who were upon the earth in those days. As it speaks of the might of those people, their, re, their renown, it's talking about their uh, fame, their notorious reputation for wickedness. And so the same thought seems to be true regarding Nimrod. When it calls him a mighty hunter, another understanding of that phrase can be a mighty rebel or a wicked rebel before the Lord. Well, we see regarding Nimrod that he founded a place that was called Babel. And it was in the land of Shinar, which is the Mesopotamian area. If your Bible has maps in the back of it, you may want to look there uh, as we're talking and find a map that deals with the ancient world. Normally that is included in the maps that are in the back of the Bible. And you will find there perhaps all of these cities that are listed in verse 10. Some of them are listed in my own Bible map. Uh, but the city of Babel is the one that has come to be known as Babylon later on. And so we find the origin of the city of Babel, this permanent settlement in the land of Shinar, was Nimrod. Nimrod, who was a mighty rebel against the Lord. He represents a revival, it seems, of that pre-flood spirit of humanism. Now remember, after the flood, there was only Noah and his wife, Mrs. Noah, and their three sons and their three wives. And so Nimrod was born after the flood. But he seems to represent the pre-flood spirit of humanism, the autonomy of man, the rebellion of man against God. And he founded Babel with that kind of a spirit the spirit of human independence from God. Now in chapter 11, we find out more regarding this place. It says, the whole earth used the same language and the same words. And it came about as they journeyed east, that is the people, as they emigrated toward the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone, and they used tar for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build us ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. 
And let us make for ourselves a name, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Now, I think it's fair to say that that was, in fact, God's plan. That humankind should scatter over the face of the earth and uh, replenish the earth with a human population. That the earth should be filled and subdued in that sense. But we see here the spirit in man not wanting to scatter, but rather to remain together. And so these people mentioned here begin to build a city and a tower. And it says, The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have the same language, and this is what they began to do, and now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. And so it's obvious that the tower that was being built was to be a rallying point. It was to be the focal point for that civilization, and it was to represent man in his independence from God. And God clearly saw that. That's the way God evaluated it. And in order to cause that to cease, God came down, it says, and he gave them different languages. He scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth. And they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth. Now, in the Akkadian language where Babel originates, the word means gate of God. And so that seems to be the name that the people had for it, that here was the gate of God, and yet as the city was named Babel, there was a double meaning to it. And in the Hebrew, a very similar word, Babel, means to confuse. It comes from that verb, and that's where Moses says that the name really finds its origin in that there God confused the languages of men, and God scattered man over the whole earth in order to bring to an end that rebellion that Babel represented. Well, from secular history we learn that in time, this area of Shinar, or Mesopotamia, was developed by a people that uh, were known as Sumerians. Not Samaritans, they were much later, but Sumerians, S-U-M-E-R-I-A-N-S, Sumerians. The Sumerians' precise origin is unknown. And what examples we have of their written language seems uh, difficult to relate to any other language that we know. But their culture, archaeologists feel, resembles that which was a part of the earliest civilization found in India. And so what we have here in the Sumerians are peoples whose roots go all the way back probably to the texts that we're reading about in the Word of God. For several hundred years, the Sumerians were dominated by a people to the north of them who were called Akkadians. Now, Akkadians are related to that other city that Nimrod founded, Akkad, A-K-K-A-D, And those descendants who lived in that area dominated the Sumerians uh, for a period of time. Um, Later on, they were dominated by another group of people who were called the Guti people, G-U-T-I, who were very fierce and barbarian. 
but it was about 2100 B.C., about 4,000 years ago, that uh, the Sumerians rebelled and established a nation of their own, a Sumerian nation. Now, I mentioned that because they had a capital city that they developed that was called Ur, U-R. And it was from that city, Ur of the Chaldees, as it is called in the Bible, this capital city of the Sumerians, that Abraham, or Abram, was called out from God just about this time, 2100 B.C. <clears throat> he was called to go out of the land of Ur, the land of his fathers, into the land that God would show him. And his journey uh, led him to Haran, and then on eventually to the other end of the Fertile Crescent in Palestine. And so we have a connection there with biblical history, that it was from the Sumerian peoples and from the city of Ur that Abram was called out of God. And uh, there we have the, the plan of redemption beginning to be fulfilled as God calls out his servant. Well, that's the first mountain peak, so to speak, the origin of the city. And uh, we come now, after a couple of hundred years at least, to another time when Babylon was developed even more, and it was what is called a city-state. In other words, it was not a large empire, but it was a, a city that controlled the area immediately around it, and so it was called a city-state. And uh, it was in the second millennium B.C. that that area was conquered by a people called the Amorites, who are mentioned in the Old Testament, of course. And uh, the city of Babylon was restored and enlarged by the Amorites as their own capital city. It was not long after that that uh, the first dynasty of Babylon, as it is called, was formed. <clears throat> this is sometimes called Old Babylonia. And its first king was a man by the name of Sumu Abam. He was the first ruler, and he began ruling in about 1894 B.C. Now, I mentioned that because it was about that time that Joseph was down in Egypt and was gaining power under Pharaoh and, as you know, was used to preserve uh, his father Jacob and his brethren in the time of famine. And so about the time that Babylon arose for its second time of power, Old Babylonia, it's called, about the time that its first king came to his greatness, in Bible history we have Joseph down in Egypt. So that kind of helps you relate that uh, chronologically. Now returning to Babylon, the most famous ruler in old Babylonia in secular history was a man by the name of Hammurabi. He was the sixth king, actually, in old Babylonia and reigned from 1792 to 1750 B.C. He was a man of many interests. He had a lot of culture about him. He was a military leader, quite a politician, a refined statesman. Uh, and he is best known for what is called the Code of Hammurabi. If you've had any courses in world history or in... Uh, perhaps even in law, you've heard of the Code of Hammurabi. Uh, this code was discovered in this century, in 1901. 
It was actually discovered in another city than Babylon, but in that other city they found an object called a stele, which is an upright uh, stone, on which had been engraved some things. And originally this stone had been over in Babylon before it had been moved. And uh, Hammurabi had caused this engraving to be on the stone. And what it was on the stone was an outlining of the rights of individuals. Well, this was a brand new concept in, in Hammurabi's time. He outlined there, furthermore, the law of retaliation, which became a very important thing, the lex talionis. And uh, he described in his code varying penalties according to the social class of the person. Now, I don't want to belabor that point, except to say that old Babylonia was best known for this man and for what is called the Code of Hammurabi. Now, about this same time that he lived and put together this code and wrote it upon that stele, that piece of stone, the Jews were already in slavery down in Egypt. Joseph had died, and a new pharaoh rose who knew not Joseph. And uh, the descendants of Joseph and his brethren were in slavery, and they would be, yet for about another 300 years before the Exodus. Well, long before the Exodus, Babylon was captured by a people called the Hittites. That was in 1595 B.C. Now, I mention the Hittites in particular because for a long time, uh, only the Bible recorded the Hittite nation. There was no record of them in secular history at all, And liberal, quote, scholars uh, mocked the Bible, saying that here was an example of biblical inaccuracy, the non-historical nature of the Bible, for it mentioned uh, a very powerful people called the Hittites that didn't even exist in the ancient world. However, much to the chagrin of those people who believed that, eventually the archaeologists dug far enough and at the right places to find out that there was a Hittite nation after all. And that, in fact, it reigned just at the time that the Bible says it did, and it was just as powerful as the Bible says it was. And the Hittites conquered Babylon about 1595 B.C. Uh, Later, however, it was overthrown uh, by a a group called the Kassites, who were barbarians. Uh, They had no interest in culture at all. The only contribution that can be found from the Kassites is that they introduced the horse into the Tigris-Euphrates Valley. Before that, the horse was not known there. But because these were such a barbarian people, Babylon went downhill, and it lost most of its splendor and its power. And so that ended that second uh, mountain peak of Babylonian history. Old Babylonia failed and ended because of the Hittites and then the Kassites who overthrew the people. Now let me just mention as an aside at this point that at this same time, about 500 miles up the Tigris River, if you look on your map in the back of the Bible, you will find a small kingdom perhaps mentioned, the kingdom of Asher, A-S-S-U-R. The people who lived in that little kingdom came to be known later as the Assyrians, And I mention them because as they rose to power over the centuries, 
they had a part in beginning the third stage of Babylonian history, the third peak of history, which is called Neo-Babylonia. And here we come beyond Babylonia, a city-state, to an empire that ruled a vast territory. And we also moved several hundred years. We've just talked about 1595 B.C. We're going to skip about 700 years now and come to the 8th century B.C. And now the Assyrians, whom we just mentioned, have risen to power. And they took an interest in Babylonia. They did so because uh, their king, Shalmaneser III, was asked to come to Babylon to help settle a political rivalry. However, once getting interested in it, uh, being uh, the kind of a power they were, uh, they didn't lose interest in Babylon. Later on, one Merodach Baladin uh, proclaimed Babylon independent from Syria and tried to throw off these interested Assyrians. Uh, He did this in 722, 721 B.C. That, by the way, is the same year that the Assyrians went down to Samaria, to the northern kingdom called Israel, and captured it. Remember this morning we mentioned that after the death of Solomon, the people of of Israel divided into two nations, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And the two were at times friendly and most of the time were hostile toward one another though they were of the same parentage, the same heritage. The northern kingdom, Samaria it was called at times, with its capital city called Samaria, was always a wicked nation, not one good king in all of their years. And now God brings them into judgment. He ends that northern kingdom of Israel, Samaria, in 722 when the Assyrians come down and take them away. Babylon was able to sustain its independence from Syria for a period of time, about 10 years, before its next king, who was called Sargon II of Assyria, regained control. Now, earlier I mentioned Merodach Baladin, and some of these names may get confusing to you, but bear with me. Merodach Baladin, who had been this king of Babylon who tried to throw off the Assyrians initially, and now was overthrown again by the Assyrians. They did not kill him, but rather they allowed him to live. And he took advantage of that. And after a few years, he was able to bring together enough people to again make a bid for power in about 703 B.C. Now, I mention that because, again, that ties into biblical history. And I'd like you to turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 20, where he is mentioned. He wants to come to power again, but in order to really throw out the Assyrians, he needed some help. And so he went to Hezekiah, who was the king of Judah, and asked Hezekiah to join him in an alliance to fight off the Assyrians. Well, it says in verse 12 of 2 Kings 20, At that time Merodach Baladin, a a son of Baladin, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he had heard that Hezekiah had been sick. Now, this was not just a get well card. 
understand that he was doing this in order to try to bribe him to get involved in this alliance. And Hezekiah listened to them and showed them all his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, and the house of his armor, and all that was found in the treasuries. There was nothing in his house nor in all his dominion that Hezekiah did not show them. Oh, what a foolish man Hezekiah was. These Babylonians came down, bringing this offering, bringing the get well wishes, bringing the invitation, Hezekiah, join us against the Assyrians. And he took advantage to brag a little bit. He wanted to show off the riches of his realm. And so he took these people from Babylonia on a little tour of his kingdom and of all of his riches. Isaiah or, uh, knew that that was a uh, a mistake. And so in verse 14, Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say, and from where did they come to you? And Hezekiah said, They came from a far country, from Babylon. And he said, What have they seen in your house? And so Hezekiah said everything. And Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all that your fathers have laid up in store to this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your sons who shall issue from you, whom you shall beget, shall be taken away. And they shall become officials in the palace of the king of Babylon. And so Isaiah warned Hezekiah about what had happened. He says, you have blown it, your majesty. Because someday these people are going to come back. And they're going to want to clean out all the treasures that you've showed them. And some of your own descendants are going to be carried away to Babylon as captives. <clears throat> well, Hezekiah did not go along with the deal. He backed out of the alliance. Nonetheless, back over in Babylon now, Merodach Baladin made his play for power. And Sennacherib, who was of Assyria, countered against him and foiled his plan. And uh, years after that, following several intrigues, Sennacherib finally went to Babylon and sacked it and declared it to be abandoned for 70 years. He said, no one is to live in this place. He was fed up with the intrigues uh, in Babylon against the rule of his country, the Assyrians. However, it wasn't long after that that Sennacherib died. By the way, you will recognize the name Sennacherib from the Bible. <clears throat> After he had died, his son came to power. Esar Haddon was his name. And as soon as he came to power, he rescinded the decree his father had made about Babylon, went back to the city there and rebuilt it, reestablished it. And uh, yet it remained dominated by Assyria until 626 B.C., now, if you've been listening the last few weeks, you know that 626 B.C. is an important year because that was the year that there was a Chaldean governor by the name of Nabopolassar who rose up and managed to throw out the Assyrians once and for all. In fact, he conquered the Assyrians. He did them in. And uh, this man, Nabopolassar, was invited to become the king of Babylon, which he did become. <clears throat> and he was a mighty man of war, but he died 
in 605 B.C. Now again, if you've been listening the last few weeks, you recognize that year because that was the year that his son became king in his place. And his son name, son's name was Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, as we have studied, became the greatest king during this third period of Babylon's history, this third mountain peak. And as you know, he attacked Jerusalem once in 605 B.C., and just like Isaiah had warned Hezekiah, he cleaned out the temple, he took away captives, including Daniel. He came back in 597, took more treasure, he took out some more captives, including Ezekiel, And finally, when he had had enough of the rebellion of the Judeans, he came back once more in 586. He besieged the city and destroyed it. And the people of of Israel or of Judah were taken away to Babylon and thus uh, to continue their 70 years that we looked at this morning, 70 years of captivity to the Babylonians. Now, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, Babylon eventually fell. Nebuchadnezzar was a great king, the most powerful king of his day. But uh, he died in 562 B.C., and after him, as we have seen, there were several kings. And finally, Belshazzar was on the throne. He was killed, and the nation was overthrown by the Medes and the Persians in 539. And so the Medes and the Persians took over, and uh, under their rule, the city of Babylon uh, languished because they were involved in wars all over the place. And in fact, you can probably see in one of your maps how extensive their kingdom was, all the way, at least all the way over to the edge of Europe, all the way over to India, a vast empire the Medes and the Persians tried to maintain. But it was very expensive for them to do that, and they could not keep up all of these cities, and one of the cities that languished was uh, the city of Babylon. And so it began its decline. It was several hundred years later, in 331 B.C., that uh, the city had another visitor, this one from the west, one who came speedily from the west, like a goat charging his way, you remember his name? Daniel had prophesied that he would come and that he would bring the extension of the Greek Empire. His name is Alexander the Great. And on October the 1st, 331 B.C., Alexander entered into the city of Babylon to the joy of the people who were very tired of the, the Medes who hated them. And he conquered the city and then he was named the King of Babylon. Now, Alexander was not the kind of man to stay around and enjoy his spoils. As you know, he had a a real zest for power. He had a taste for conquering nations. And so he went on beyond Babylon, conquering the land of the Medes and the Persians all the way over to the Indus River, uh, the border of India. And then he turned around and he came back. And nine years later, came back to the city of Babylon. It seems as though he intended to make Babylon, if not the major city of his empire, at least one of the major cities. And Alexander put together some fabulous plans for renovating the city of Babylon. Now keep in mind that Babylon has always represented man's rebellion against God. 
It's always been the focal point of man's autonomy against God, and that certainly was Alexander's attitude. So he wanted to resurrect this city of Babylon that Nimrod had begun centuries before, make it a great city again, but he only got started on his plans because not long after he had begun his renovation, Alexander died in the city of Babylon on June the 13th, 323 B.C. And after that, the city of Babylon declined quickly. One of his generals, Seleucus, became responsible for that area, but he uh, built his capital in another location, forgot the city of Babylon, and it just went downhill. And uh, although the city was inhabited until 100 A.D., about the time that John the Apostle died, it was inhabited at least by a priestly caste of people. The city never had its power back, and it certainly declined in that third period. Now, we have a mention of Babylon in the New Testament in kind of an interesting context. I'd like you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. Peter is writing to the Jews of the dispersion, Jewish believers of the dispersion, those who had become Christians and who for their faith had suffered and been dispersed throughout the Roman Empire. And he says in verse 13, chapter 5, She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. By Mark he means John Mark, undoubtedly not his physical son, but his spiritual son in the faith. But that interesting word, she who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings. This may be understood that Peter himself was in that literal city of Babylon, over in the land of Shinar, which is just a fraction of what it used to be in its glory, which still had a small population, and that there were some Jews who had been dispersed, who were there, who were believers, and Peter was visiting them and sent greetings to those who were receiving the letter. However, the better understanding, I think, is that Peter was using the word Babylon here as sort of a code word. (coughs) In other words, Babylon here doesn't represent that city of Babylon, but it was a code word, a symbolic name that Peter was using for Rome. Because tradition does tell us that Peter spent uh, a number of years in Rome, uh, that he may even have been executed there at Rome, and that he's probably here saying, these Christians who are in Babylon, i.e. Rome, uh, send you greetings. And it may be for some security reasons that he decided to call it Babylon rather than Rome. But again, remember, Babylon is not only a literal city, but in the Bible it's symbolic of human rebellion against God. And the Roman Empire, the capital city being Rome, was in rebellion against God and was persecuting believers. And so that may be why he called it Babylon. Now we want to come to the fourth mountain peak as we bring this message to a close. And we find this in the book of Revelation, first in chapter 14. Again, the symbolic use of the name is uh, the best understanding as we come here. The Bible indicates that in the last days there will yet be another Babylon. There are some who argue that the literal city of Babylon will be rebuilt, and there have been those 
who have suggested the rebuilding of the city of Babylon. But here in the book of Revelation, it seems best to understand it uh, not as that literal city of Babylon, but as uh, a name for perhaps another city, but certainly a system that is anti-God, a system that is both religious and commercial, that is opposed to God. In chapter 14 of Revelation, in verse 8, it says, And another angel, a second one, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. Well, now these angels are are speaking of something that had not yet happened as the book of Revelation falls out chronologically, but which was sure to happen. And so they're speaking ahead of an event uh, to encourage the saints who are suffering. Babylon is going to fall is the point. Then again in chapter 16 and verse 19, it says, And the great city was split in three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and Babylon the great was remembered before God. Now believe me, that's not a good sign for Babylon. Because it says, they, It was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. And so now the time has come for the judgment to fall upon this end time, Babylon. Babylon is described for us in chapters 17 and 18. And obviously we don't have time to look at this in its detail. However, we do find that this future Babylon that John foresees in the book of Revelation fulfills, it represents the consummation of Nimrod's dream. It is a civilization, a system of humanity, and very likely a capital city of that system that is organized in its defiance against God. I believe, as I interpret the book of Revelation in a historical, grammatical sense, that is, in a literal sense, that uh, this city of Babylon is related to the revived Roman Empire, which will be under the leadership of Antichrist, the end-time emperor of the Roman Empire. And in chapter 17, we have described to us the religious system that is associated with this future Babylon. Uh, it is described here symbolically as a woman in verse 4 who was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. Now, so you see here a very regally dressed woman. There's royalty that appears to be involved here, a lot of adornment, riches, but having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and of the unclean things of her immorality. And so the exterior is very uh, uh, ornate. There is gold and silver and all these precious things, but the inside... The essence of what this system is all about is immorality and abominations. And upon her forehead a name was written, a mystery, quote, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth, 
Now that is the name given to this woman who is symbolic. And as you look at the chapter, this represents a religious system. It is an occultic, a demonic amalgamation of many religions, at the core of which is apostate Christendom. In other words, uh, we are told that Christianity, Christendom in its broadest sense, is going to grow more and more corrupt and apostate in the last days. And it will join forces with every unclean thing you can imagine. Every kind of religion will all be brought under this umbrella that is represented here by the name Babylon the Great. It is apostate religion, which is in defiance against God. It will be led by one called in the book of Revelation, the false prophet. And this very powerful religious leader will uh, lead the masses of Antichrist empire in worship of this individual. Uh, He will direct the attention and the adoration of the the masses to this very powerful Christ-like figure who will come on the scene initially as a man of peace, of great charismatic ability, a great leader, a marvelous politician, only later to reveal his true, iniquitous, wicked character. He is a man of lies, a man of murder. But he doesn't come on that way at first. And as he comes on with this appearance of Messiah, the modern-day Christ, the Christ for the new age, if you please, the false prophet will rise up and say, here he is, and here are miracles that uh, prove that this is the Christ Spirit who's come back to the earth, behold what he can do, and with his miracles that uh, Paul calls lying wonders performed by the power of Satan, he will deceive many who have rejected the truth of the gospel and who are therefore turned to believe the lie about this man. And they will fall under the, the power, the hypnotic power of this one, and will be a part of this religious system here that is a part of Babylon in the end time. Now it mentions here a further description of the beast that this woman rides upon. Uh, <clears throat> let me just point out in verse 9 that it says, The seven heads of this beast are seven mountains on which the woman sits, and they are seven kings. And he goes on to mention some more about these kings. Now, it may well be that in addition to representing people, the seven mountains represent seven hills or mountains upon which this capital city, the headquarters of this apostate church, where this church will reign, where it will rule. And uh, this has for centuries been identified with Rome, the city of Rome. I would not be surprised to to eventually see a movement away from Brussels as being the uh, capital of the United States of Europe, a dream, by the way, that goes all the way back through Napoleon and back through history, but a, a movement to see that capital shifted from Brussels to the city of Rome.
Now the harlotry that is mentioned here in connection with this religious system indicates her unfaithfulness to the true God. It says that she is drunk from the blood of the saints. In other words, she'll be deeply involved in persecuting true Christians. And uh, she will be allied, this religious system, with Antichrist for the first three and a half years of his reign. The beast will carry her along and use this religious system to help uh, bring together his power. However, after three and a half years, the beast will turn on the religious system and do it in. And his real character will come out. Now in chapter 18, as I move ahead here and, and close, we see another aspect of this renewed Babylon this fourth mountain peak of Babylon's history described. It is the political commercial system. It is that aspect of this future empire that will be controlled by the beast, by the Antichrist. Uh, He will dominate most of the world. He will control world commerce. He will, by his economic power, put tremendous pressure upon the saints of God so that they cannot buy or sell because they refuse the mark of identification with the beast. Ultimately, this whole system, which will possibly be headquartered in Rome, this whole system, Antichrist's thing, his his power base, will collapse. And we see here the peoples of the earth mourning and crying out, Woe! Woe! as they look upon this city in its destruction and this system as it collapses under the judgment of God. There will be tremendous mourning because everything that these worldlings have lived for, all that they've dreamed about, all of their hopes will collapse with the passing away of the future Babylon. And we see that anguish described here in this chapter. However, we also see in the last part of the chapter quite a contrast. And that is that as this future Babylon collapses and the empire of Antichrist is judged, the saints in heaven will begin rejoicing and shouting their praise to God. Verse 21 says, Thus will Babylon the great city be thrown down with violence and will not be found any longer. And uh, heaven rejoices as the, uh, the followers of Antichrist weep over the destruction of this system that is opposed to God. And so we have four peaks of, of Babylonian history throughout uh, human history. Four times when Babylon has come to the front and then sunk back, a time yet to come, a time at the end, a time that very well may be fulfilled in uh, the generation of the people alive on the earth today. Now you say, well, that's all very interesting. How does that apply to us? Well, I suppose there are several things we might say, but let me encourage you tonight with this thought. That is the sovereignty of God in human history. Whether you look on the local or the state scene or you look on the international scene, it is encouraging to remember 
that God is still in control. That there is nothing that is beyond God's oversight. Man can rebel against God. He can, can maneuver. Uh, he can, uh, can uh, defy God within certain boundaries. But he can't go beyond that. And inevitably, the current of history is in the direction that God wants it to go. Now I mentioned that because uh, there is a temptation, I think, for Christians to become discouraged with what we see in the world today. Whether you look in our state scene and you see important moral issues that can't get through our state legislature, (coughs) talking about the value of life, a very basic moral quality that has been a part of the Judeo-Christian heritage in this civilization. And that cannot be guaranteed by our legislature. And you have a great movement against the right to life. Uh, Or you talk about uh, even the direction of our government and its policies in the world today. We might be discouraged and we think, uh, well, where is God in all of this? Remember, God is in control. I shared this with uh, Wendell Brown before the service tonight as we were praying together. I believe that God is allowing the cup of iniquity in the United States to be filled up. And I believe that we're going to lose more battles than we're going to win. I do not mean to be pessimistic. I mean to be realistic. I believe the whole shift is now away from where it's been over the last 10 or 15 years, and the power is moving quickly in the other direction, and that God is allowing that so that the cup of iniquity in the United States can be filled to the brim, and God will be righteous when he brings about judgment upon this nation. There can be no question in anybody's mind that this nation deserves and will deserve what God will allow to come to pass over the next few years. For our nation is going to collapse, folks. It is going to collapse. It must. That doesn't mean that we ought to throw up our hands and, and uh, just give up. No, not at all. We have a commission. We're to proclaim the gospel. We're to be salt and light in our world. But our nation, the United States of America, is but another Gentile world power. And in the end, all of the Gentile nations must come under the judgment of God and will. And so our nation uh, is headed for judgment. And as the shift takes place and as iniquity begins to abound more and more, the love of many begins to wax cold. And when there's not even the natural affection of parents for their own children... Uh, whether they be born children or unborn children. And all of the indications of iniquity that are described in uh, 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3 and in 1 Timothy chapter 4, all of those things are coming in the last days. As all of that develops, and God allows it to develop, He's simply in the end going to prove His righteousness in bringing judgment even upon this nation. And we might say, oh, but there are way too many Christians here for God to allow that to happen. Hey, there was a remnant in Judah, too, when Nebuchadnezzar took that nation. 
But the nation was sent into judgment because as a people, they turned to idolatry and immorality. And though there is a remnant of true believers in our nation, God is not going to spare our nation because of the remnant. I'm convinced of that. Eventually, this nation, too, will go into judgment. And so what kind of people ought we to be in this day? And how ought we to be preparing ourselves for what is coming? God is the God of history, and ultimately, God is going to win. Somebody has said, I can't be a pessimist because I know the last chapter of the book. We know in the end how things are ultimately going to turn out. We need to be preparing ourselves for what is coming and rejoice that ultimately, hallelujah, the Lord our God omnipotent reigns. And though there may be defeats and there may be suffering ahead, ultimately God is on the throne. And he has set his king upon his holy hill of Zion. And that king must reign and will reign one day over a kingdom of righteousness and justice and truth upon the earth. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that our hearts might be stimulated with these thoughts, that we will be sobered, that we will be challenged to be godly people, a people of the book, a people of prayer, a people set apart and different in this age as the world, as we have known it, begins to come to its assigned culmination. We bless you that you are the God of history and that ultimately human rebellion represented in our study tonight by Babylon and human defiance against your kingship must fail. And we pray as our Lord Jesus taught us to pray, Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Sanctify us. And may we be encouraged by knowing that we belong to the King, that we're on the side of victory in the end, and that we have a job to do to be faithful to Jesus Christ. And may we be about our Lord's business. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for your patience tonight as we have looked through the study of the Word of God. You're dismissed.